Hey guys, you're listening to The Courier Weekly. I'm Courier's Editorial Director, Danny Giacopelli. First off, before we dig into this week's show, I hope you guys have checked out our new six-part podcast series called Looking Up. Every week I'm joined by Amir Jiwa, who you probably know from our workshop podcasts, and we virtually travel up and down the UK to meet small business owners in six cities who have adapted and pivoted during the pandemic. So far we've been to London, Manchester, and Brighton. Next week, we're heading to Bristol. You can search for Looking Up on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Right, with that said, let's get into it. A bit later on the weekly, we're with the founder of a new email product that claims to help you focus better. We'll talk about how communication is changing during the pandemic and what it means for our productivity. So stick around. But first, I'm with the South African-born, UK-based founder, Nomshada Michelle Baca, who launched her beauty and wellness brand, a complexion company, only weeks before lockdown. She did it after years of listening, researching, and finding her USP in the market. We're going to dig into her journey till now and what she's learned. My upbringing is a vast contrast to um, sort of life today. I am the third generation in my family to be educated and probably the second to learn how to speak English. My mother got a scholarship to the UK and she started her education here. So I spent my first sort of formative years with my grandmother in Zimbabwe and sort of crossing the border and going to South Africa to see my father's family and his relatives. You know, life was very different, you know, because we weren't even middle class. We were very poor from where we were coming from. It was just fortunate that my grandmother was a teacher and therefore the importance of education was instilled into us very early on. And she was the first to have an education, you know, followed by my mother, followed by me. I came to the UK as a child when my mother sort of prepared everything ready for me to come and to continue my education here. Things were very challenging in South Africa. We lived in Hauteng, we lived in a flat where all manner of challenges were there and possible. There was a culture of drugs and crime and it really was a dangerous place for anybody, let alone like a young daughter who could be kidnapped and all manner of things can happen. So my mother saw it as an opportunity for me to have a new life and a new start. She had managed to get essentially out of the country for the purpose of education and she did that primarily for me. So I came to the UK for my education. It is for sure one of the most important decisions that my mother ever made for me. When did you say, ah, there's a gap in the market and I know exactly what I can do to fill that gap? I identified it quite early as a young female who was growing in her career, having more disposable income to enjoy and some of the things that she enjoys the most, such as beauty products. So I identified it pretty early that the industry was wanting something within the wellness space and within the clean beauty space, especially as a person wanting it for myself. And I would probably say that I actively began my plans in 2016. That's when I started attending trade shows. I started putting together an idea of what it could be, what I could stand for and how the brand can be formed. I do what I call social listening. I do a lot of that. And during that time, it was really interesting to see what was happening in society. We had probably the softer version of Black Lives Matter happening at that time too. We had Fenty Beauty come out 
the moment beauty come out this call for diversity 40 shades being the standard for foundation lines and, and cosmetics and i thought that was quite fascinating to watch that transformation and that change while Fenty beauty had that first mover's advantage it gave me the opportunity to learn from what they were doing well but also to listen to the criticism that came from some of these foundation launches and these diversity plays and what i identified was that there was still a certain dissatisfaction with this type of diversity within the industry it still felt a bit like an add on and i remember having a reflection that it's quite interesting that our customer doesn't quite know how to vocalize what it is that they want because they said they want more colors they got more colors but then they still weren't happy so that means that that wasn't really the problem and i remember at the time i was really big into reading elon musk's biology and the first principles going back to the question like really asking what is the question before you provide the solution and i had to ask what is the question what is it that they're actually demanding and what it is that they want and that is when i discovered this desire for authenticity this desire for heritage at the same time simultaneously outside of the beauty industry you were having this big diaspora explosion the year of the return in ghana 1 billion us dollars spent in a couple of months because of investment into ghana tourism into ghana you had a lot of conversation about africa and pan africanism and you had the diaspora really having this conversation about its connection to the continent of africa and this was all happening i guess as a sort of an undercurrent of identity activism and, and sort of the political things i was able to have a look at that listen closely and refine that over time to identify that our consumer didn't just want to be caught up to what is currently happening in the market because whilst fenty was new it wasn't doing anything new particularly as a brand it was just catching up black women to where we should have been in the first place what they now wanted was the future and the future meant heritage it meant identity it meant to reconnect to their culture and from wherever they're from and you think Rihanna didn't deliver that through her kind of bold personality and do you think it needed a bit more like grassroots smaller businesses to add that authenticity? I think so. I think coming off LVMH the brand was a little bit tainted to begin with. It couldn't have the authenticity which a entirely new brand self-funded from a micro community could have had she began the conversation which i think is really important she began the conversation at a really elevated level at a level which is at department stores which is at the premium price bracket which people of color were pretty much being ignored so i thought that was really important and having started my business i understand why she needed that type of funding <laughs> but nevertheless it did lack a little bit of authenticity just based upon the fact that she was leveraging off a platform which was already heavily established and very european what she did do was begin the conversation and open up a space for a company such as myself to come in i know that you kind of have a belief that you know there's not a lot of understanding of 
black skin types in the beauty world and the, and in the skincare world and that you know all these labs manufacture things not for that demographic they manufacture things for white people basically and that skews all of the R&D and the innovation and the research and everything and then it ends up with a substandard product that's just kind of an afterthought really for people who aren't white right what i have discovered in the makings of this company is that the labs and the contract manufacturers are not incentivized in a way to create these products because they're not being demanded by the brands. And if a brand by somebody wanting to create a diverse line approaches a lab or a contract manufacturer, they need a lot of funding in order to get the lab to actually create a sample a test because nothing can be taken from their category and from their catalogue and used without modification. So that hinders a lot of companies from starting and from starting with a developed product because you already have this barrier to the market, which is a financial barrier because you have to now have minimum order quantities. You have to have an entirely new formula being made and unless you have the financial backing for that you're not going to be demanding it from the lab or the contract manufacturer so if you want to start a company it's so much easier for you just to take what's off the shelf because they don't have high minimum order quantities when you take it off the shelf and you can just work with that if you can work with that the problem that lies there is that with clean beauty, you can't do that because there isn't a wide variety of a catalogue for you to come and pick and choose from and then modify later. Everything has to be bespoke. Clean beauty is a space which is even less diverse than the general beauty industry. It's been spearheaded by the likes of Gwyneth Paltrow, um, Emma Stone, so and also like Glossier does have some clean beauty products. It's not been, at least on the brand level, been made accessible for people of colour. And so if people aren't buying it at the end of the value chain, there aren't any customers purchasing, it's not because there isn't a demand, it's just because there aren't any products to buy. So if you were to create the products to buy, you now have to go to the top of the supply chain and you have to spend as much as you need to spend for product research and development in order to get it into the market in the first place, just to test it out and see if customers are going to buy. So you have, you know, a bit of a chicken and egg conundrum because you're demanded on on both ends. What is quite interesting with clean beauty is that it is growing in demand and it's at a micro scale. You're having a lot of BAME founders making their own products at home. There's a lot of clean beauty when it comes to hair products and face masks and other ingredients which they're making from within their kitchen. You know, it's plant-based, it's green beauty, but it does fall under this bracket of clean, sustainable beauty. However, it's very, you know, kitchen science. Even if you're making it from home, it does not necessarily mean that you're going to come up with a formulation that's going to be safe for use on skin for a long period of time. I see those activities happening, but from the consumer end where they're just buying different ingredients and making it themselves, which demonstrates a demand for these types of products within a brand that is established within department stores, online, and also, you know, within global retailers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then so with the complexion company, I guess get back to my original point, what specific app were you then going to plug after you had this like big insight? 
After I identified all of these separate elements, which sometimes they seem conflicting to one another, it was now the journey of trying to bring it all together in a manner which is both sellable to investors because I needed investment and authentic to the consumers and effective to the user and also different to what is currently being offered within the market. This was a really big challenge, which is why I would say that it has taken me about four years to refine the company for its current proposition. I could only lead it in the manner which I, I know best, and that's sort of as authentic as possible. I know investing, as, as you kind of touched upon there, was the next logical step. And I know you went through a, a big process of trying to raise the money to get such a thing off the ground. What were your experiences then with raising money? Oh, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> it was the challenge. I found myself often in rooms where I was seeing others pitch, I was seeing others seek investment, the same as myself. But I was experiencing different questions in comparison to what my other fellow founders were experiencing. I found that with a company, like a beauty company, and also being led by a solo female founder, that I was asked a lot about why I wanted to do my business as opposed to how I was going to do it. So there was a lot of justifying and defending my idea along the way, which made it really exhausting because somebody can come with a proposition that's been done before multiple times over. And the questioning of that individual will always be just, okay, tell us how you're going to do it. We're then able to further go, you know, dig deep into their company and share their proposition. But it felt I wasn't always afforded to get to that stage because I had to justify why I was standing there in the first place. I've read that you've um, spoken about the fact that the assumption that founders can just bootstrap or go to friends and family, that people just have, you know, tens of thousands of pounds just squirreled away somewhere in their bank account. Well, it's not true. I mean, not everybody does have that. (laughs) And it's like, you know, maybe could you talk a bit about, you know, just the assumption that a lot of times people do need outside money. You can't bootstrap. Absolutely. Um, In my experience, the gatekeepers to the industry the gatekeepers to the money, they don't look like me. They don't have my background. They don't understand the challenges that I go through in order just to stand in front of them and be able to send that email. Many of them can't even fathom a member of their family not being educated and not being able to read and write and speak English. But that's very much my reality. So I had to learn that very quickly, that I was not going to be talking to anybody like myself. I had to learn how to sell and win them over. But I also had to be confronted with this question of why don't you have a friends and family around? And, you know, how could I then explain that, that, you know, I'm an immigrant, I'm from an immigrant community. And what tends to happen within our communities is that the move from one country to another is so expensive that a family will spend all of its wealth into the education of their child because that child is the investment that will then take care of them. And that even from a very early stage, many of my friends who also are immigrant children, first generation children, are supporting family members who are five, six times our age, (laughs) you know, well, maybe not five, six times, but we're supporting family members abroad, even with our small salaries and our, you know, our small businesses. And that is very much a cultural thing. 
So for the reverse to be implied that I'm able to now go to them and say, okay, you've retired. Do you have some money to invest into my startup? That money's already been spent. The children who are between the ages of sort of 50 and 25 who are responsible for taking care of those who are younger and those who are older because they're the working generation. So even our own personal wealth is not ours. It tends to be divided within our families. And your first paycheck is not even yours. In my culture, you give it to your parents. (laughs) So you work the first month for free. (laughs) Cultural differences, which made it difficult for many people to understand initially why hasn't this company raised the friends and family round surely they can put together 30,000 from the network that she has she's well traveled she's gone to a good education there should be resource amongst her family not the case because the investment was already made and it was made into me already as a child all the way up to my upbringing until I became independent. To have this conversation and say that the model which is taught in business school, every accelerator I've been into, every book that I read, this stepladder model that you start with friends and family and then that's only when you can get external funding, that does not apply to BAME communities and it creates this big £30,000 gap of funding to get us started. When many of us, even with less than 30,000, we can do 10 times, we can do more than what others can do because we've just learned how to be resourceful. We have a community, for sure. We, we come in big groups, many of us, but we just don't have that equity. We don't have that money within that community. We, we have laborers, we have workers, we have anybody who can lend their time. But if it was taught that we needed that 30,000 just to get started, we would see a lot more diverse companies in the market today. That was Noam Shadow Michelle Baca, founder of beauty and wellness brand, a complexion company. And finally, spread across Europe from Berlin and Lyon to Copenhagen and all points in between, a small virtual team of engineers and product developers are building an email client that's what they call a calming experience to help you focus. It's called Tempo, and it has features such as batching, so you can get email delivered when you want it, and a focus mode for distraction-free periods. I caught up with one of the co-founders, Sebastian Stockmar, to find out more. I think that it can be summed up a little bit in, now you just mentioned you're one of these people with thousands and thousands of emails, and I'm sure at least it is so for me, and I think for most of us in the team, that when we look back, and maybe the same for you, when we look back at least, the work that we're the proudest of or the thing that we like, this is, you know, the best I could do. And this is like the work that has the most impact in the world that rarely actually happened in an email, even though it takes up so much of our working days that happens outside of email, whether it's like a a conversation like we're having now, or you're sitting and writing something for my case, designing something that's actually like where we produce something that's like uniquely us and great and good, hopefully that we're proud of. What about, though, the competition? So, I mean, if I'm looking at email right now, I'm saying, okay, well, you have Gmail, you have Outlook, you have a couple new entrants into the market, like Superhuman and Basecamp just launched Hey. All those guys must have quadrillions of dollars in venture capital and market share of Gmail and Outlook, I I assume, have the most, although you could correct me if, if I'm wrong. But why enter that space when you probably won't get the same market share unless you have whatever, a billion dollars in venture capital. Is there a place for an alternative email service that just does what it does really well, but never gets giant 
Yeah, that's spot on why we see a need for something like Tempo to exist. We've seen it with like telcos and fintech and all of these other industries where when technology has gotten so good that super small teams like us can compete with some of the biggest, most impactful companies in the world like Google and Microsoft and who else, then these markets kind of fragments into niches. And then it's no longer about how much power you have, but then it's about how well do you know this demographic? Like how good are you at not building everything, but saying no to almost everything and just building those unique small pieces that are really, really good for that demographic. And that takes that you know that demographic, of course, really, really well. And that's what we feel that, that we can at least come to the table with and why we, like a small team of, of six, seven people now, can actually go in and compete with both Google and, and Gmail and Outlook and whatever. Else, but also this hyperventure funded companies like Superhuman and these other, other players that are out there. What is this demographic you guys are attracted to? For us, it's a lot of makers. It's one of these things, for better or worse, we are the demographic. We're building this product for us. And it's also coming out of this demographic ourselves, of course. So we're makers. We, we like to create stuff, whether it's written word or design or code or any of these other things where we actually create a lot of stuff outside of, you know, just communicating with people. And this is also what we've seen, like, a really good response from in the market. We're not traditional marketing people either. we rather go about it by really just obsessing about what we're creating, you know, painting the back of the cabinet and all of these, like, things that you hear a little bit. And we can see that this is something people really respond to, just that we continuously obsess over the product and over these what everybody else would consider tiny details for us ends up into like day long discussions about, you know, what is that perfect thing actually? What is that thing supposed to be? And I think this also comes from a, an understanding that's in our field of how much our tools actually shape our behaviors and who we are, right? Tech is not like mindless. You build something and it actually shapes people's lives quite a bit. For us at Courier, I mean, we've since lockdown, we've really doubled down on our, our usage of Slack. You know, whereas once we were in the office, we could yell across the office questions, you know, you have lunch, you go out to in person and you can ask questions. Now it's like Slack, Slack, Slack. I imagine across the world, more people are using something like Slack to communicate. Do you think that'll lead to a decrease in the email usage of those companies and people? For those kind of things that Slacks are being used for, hopefully, yes. Slack is reactionary like 90% of the time, right? Like you see something or someone pings you and then you have to go in and, and, and shoot something off the hip because otherwise you're forgetting it. You can't find it again. It's gone. Or even if you say something that's deliberate, considered, you know, this thing is gone in the stream again in a few days. And no one will find this stuff, right? Like we just create so much random communication that's captured in there that the real like golden nuggets here are just also left out. What we saw ourselves doing more and more and more in the early days of this was that we, every time we had to actually sit down and have an original thought and, and, and do something that's like deliberate and, and consider as we talked about, then we fled not even into our email clients away from Slack or Teams or something like this, but out into like a writing app like IA Writer or Notes or something else, something that's completely different disconnected from everybody else where you can really sit in like this little vacuum and actually think about what you want to say and also know that when you send it it's there it's not going to be changed it's not going to disappear in a stream or in anything else it's just this unit that you now have that you can you know take with you you can reference and, and this kind of stuff so hopefully it'll give more value when you actually then open your inbox and write an email i think it's just two very separate jobs that right now often in companies are being a little bit murked together into one. What I found interesting about you guys is that you explicitly say, you know, we want you to be spending less time in your inbox 
rather than most companies who design a product, they say, you know, we're going to use gamification to try to get you to stay in the space that we're designing as much as possible for you to keep using it. Like, you know, that documentary on Netflix that everybody's seen, you know, it's like little hacks for you to like, just click, 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 watch, watch, watch more and more and more. But you guys are like, no, we're going to try to make this as minimalist and least addicting as possible. We're going to batch things up so you don't have to continuously press refresh, right? Exactly. I think, again, it's one of these things that if we were building this for a mass market and wanted to compete with all the other players in the mass market, we would need to use these like so-called dot patterns to trick people into becoming a little bit addicted and always wanting to check and do all of these things. First of all, it's not something that we want to spend our time doing. It's not something, again, we are proud of or, or like look back on if we've ever had to use any of these things. So again, building this for basically people who work in the industry or who at least are aware of it, have watched Netflix, the Netflix series here, they will value not being kind of coerced into becoming addicted to this product. And we hope that that will create like an affinity that will bring them back. So it's because they actually want to come back, not because we're triggering small like dopamine hits throughout the day to get them to come back. Are you guys witnessing any other kind of macro trends in the way we communicate and use technology to communicate I guess, off the back of, of the pandemic, are there any ways or trends that you see communication going in? The problem is that the person who initiates a conversation chooses the platform. And that gives this little bit skewed power relationship. This is why like Facebook Messenger kind of got just took over, right? Like just we just force red receipts. Okay, so if I send a message, I'm going to go to the platform that's kind of a little bit invasive towards the other person. But me as the initiator of the conversation chooses the platform. And I think some of these things have just led to that most of us probably are getting like a, a credible amount of notifications each and every single day on so many different platforms. I think unless they really, 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 really have a strong value and a strong purpose, I think most of us are just getting bombarded to a point where we just want to cut this stuff out. And that's it this week. As always, any questions or comments, just hit me up at daniel at couriermedia.co. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. Curry Weekly is back again next Friday. We'll see you then.